All right. Well, here we go again. I hope that these uh, I hope that these studies in the book of Luke have been a blessing to you, uh, as they have to me. I'm really enjoying this. And <clears throat> this next session, we will be covering a passage of scripture that is commonly read at Christmas time, and I realize. Christmas is a ways off. Um, some of you might have started getting scared when you saw this, that you didn't get your shopping done. But the calendar has not shifted forward two months in an hour's time at lunch. It just so happens that we are at Luke chapter 2 for our study in Luke. And I actually think it's kind of neat to be studying this now because we can hopefully look at it as part of the bigger picture of the book of Luke, rather than simply as the Christmas story, as fun as that is. The title that I've given this afternoon's message is God's Greatest Gift. And of course, we know that God's greatest gift was Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at this afternoon. So let's go before the Lord in prayer as we open his word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this wonderful book. We thank you for the careful attention to detail that Luke, the beloved physician, took when he wrote this book. We thank you that you have preserved it through the years, even from people that wanted to destroy your word. And... Uh, we just thank you for people that went before us, like William Tyndale, who strove to have this book of great hope in common English so that we could all enjoy and benefit from it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have three points as before. Again, the title of this message is God's Greatest Gift. And the first point is, God comes to man. So if you are taking notes, that would be our introductory point. And we're just going to start reading in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there is no room for him in the inn. And uh, I just think it's kind of interesting the way God governs in the affairs of men. I think it was Ben Franklin who said that, and it's very true, and you can really see it in this in this story of Jesus' birth. 
Um, the first thing that I want to notice about this story is, as we know, Jesus did not come in what we as people would consider ideal circumstances. His parents were required to travel to Bethlehem from uh, their place of residence because they were of David's line. And the significance of this is, what did God promise David when he was king? He said, I will establish your throne forever. Now, earthly thrones and kingdoms fall. So, the only way that this could be a truth is for an eternal king to come from the line of David. That's why Luke is very careful to tell us that David, that Joseph was a part of the lineage of David and, and so was Mary. And so they're going to do this, this trek and I know that we often see the depiction of Joseph leading a donkey and Mary riding the donkey. Uh, we're not sure exactly what happened, but whether she rode or whether she walked, this had to be a treacherous and uncomfortable journey. Because it would be uncomfortable for any one of us, let alone for someone who is nine months pregnant. If you've ever uh, lived with someone who is nine months pregnant, which I have several times because my mom has had several younger siblings for me, um, you know that when they are nearing the end of their pregnancy, the, uh, the thing they most want to do is rather than walk, rather than expound a lot of energy, they want to sit and often with their feet up because uh, pregnancy can cause swelling and other symptoms that are uncomfortable. And so walking would not be a, a great idea, especially long distances. Now I know my mom has said that when she was getting ready to deliver, sometimes walking would help to speed up the process, and so a short walk could help on that day. But this is not a short walk. This was probably several days walk, if it was a walk, maybe a little faster if they rode, but it wasn't a short walk. It wasn't like going to your neighborhood convenience store to pick up a Slurpee. This was a major undertaking, and so we need to look at it in that context. And uh, so he goes to be... To, and he takes his spouse wife Mary with him because she's part of his family. And the days are accomplished that she should be delivered and she brings forth her firstborn son and wraps him in swaddling clothes and lays him in the manger because there is no room for them in the end. And often this is depicted, this is another thing that I've been thinking about. Often this is depicted as so many people were in Jerusalem for that, uh, for that taxes and taxes and census, that there just wasn't room for anybody else. 
And yes, that very well could have been, but what about the fact that Mary was pregnant and she wasn't married? I, I just kind of thought about that and how it might not have been comfortable for people. It couldn't have been comfortable for her family and his family to realize that regardless of how it actually happened, it appeared that something uncouth had occurred. But whatever reason that we have for rejecting the Son of God, he is nonetheless rejected. So rather than coming in and having a birth in a palace and you know putting him putting him being put on silk sheets and having everyone at his beck and call, he is born in a, and laid in a manger. And I was really thinking about this as the royal baby was born about a month ago. Now, I, I'm always excited when a baby is born. And so I, I wish William and Kate well. And it seems like they have a fairly normal relationship and in a fairly normal family right now. I pray uh, for them that they would come to know the Lord if they don't already. And that the media would leave them alone so they can lead a normal life. But the point being that there is a lot of fanfare around this baby's birth. There was a town crier who went out and announced the baby's birth and there were all these reporters waiting by the hospital, waiting to hear word and trying to get permission to take the first pictures. And uh, I just can't help but think that there was another king a more important king that no one cared about that was born under very different circumstances to parents who were humble who possibly weren't poverty stricken but they weren't rich and yet he has so much more to give us than any other royal baby ever will and you would think, God, you, you got this timing wrong. Because you could have just waited until after this census was over. And then, then let her have the baby. And then everything would be okay. But God's timing is always right. And there's a passage in, in uh, Micah, I believe. We're not going to turn to that one today. But it says, Thou Bethlehem Ephratah. Though you are the least among the cities of Judah, out of you will come a king. And that king is Jesus. And that's actually where uh, the King Herod's uh, counselors went to when he said, What do you know about a king? Find out about this king for me. And they went to Micah and they read that passage. But the one that I want to bring you to today by way of cross-reference, is actually in Galatians. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. If somebody could read that for me. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. Um, 
as we finish this point about Jesus coming into the world, God coming to man. Well, when the bonus time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, sometimes when we're when we're dealing with the Christmas story, we we talk about the, the greatness of, of Jesus coming to man. But do we ever connect in our minds that this baby come to man came to die? That this baby come to man would hang on a Roman cross 33 years later. You know, there's a passage where Simeon meets Mary and Joseph in the temple and says to Mary, Mary, you, 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 a sword will pierce your soul. This is not going to be easy, is essentially what he was saying. And then 33 years later, Mary is at the cross weeping, watching her son, her oldest son, die. And even though she knew he was the Son of God because she believed God, she was still in the process of learning her entire life what exactly that meant. And then, of course, Jesus being the oldest son, I love the fact that he takes care of his earthly duties with as much care as he does his heavenly ones because as the oldest son, he was responsible for his mother. And he knew he wouldn't be there for her, so he said to John, take her into your home. She's your mother. And he did so. And he said to her, John is your son. Respect him that way. And from that day forward, that's the way they did it. Because he knew that he was leaving and he couldn't care for her. How wonderful to know that even on the cross, we see the divine humanity of our Savior. I just want to share this quote. Augustine of Hippo said, Man's maker man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that the light might sleep, that the way be tired on the journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher might be beaten with whips, that the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. I don't know about you, but that... When I read that quote, it really made me start to think about the significance of what happened when Jesus came. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Now it's time for someone to find out about this wonderful gift. My second point is the message goes forth. Now if I were going to tell about a king today, I would uh, probably get... And call the major news outlets and and you know write a press release and say the king is born. 
I know when, when, when this little prince was born a month ago, that's what they did. Everybody was talking about the prince being born because it went out over the wires and everybody found out. And probably the royals and the well-to-do found out first. But this is what God decides to do. God's economy is quite often different from the way you or I would do things. And I'm so glad because we really don't know what we're doing. But here's what it says. Continuing on. And the second point is Luke 2, 8 to 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. You know, I don't know if there was a rehearsal for this beforehand, and I guess I'm putting a little bit of a human spin on it, but how exciting must it have been for the angels to know that they had this excitement, this assignment, to share this good news which will be to all men even at his birth there were indications that we as Gentiles would be accepted what a wonderful privilege and these shepherds um, there's speculation about who they are. Some people say that they were literally in charge of the lambs for Passover, which would have been uh, poetic in a sense, that they being in charge of the lambs prepared for Passover would hear the news of the ultimate Passover lamb. But again, we don't want to confuse man's speculation with the word of God. So how amazing would it have been to be sitting there in that field as a shepherd? And we know that shepherd was somewhat of a lowly occupation because if you look at David, when Jesse comes to anoint a king out of, uh, when, when uh, Samuel comes to anoint a king out of Jesse's sons, seven of them come, where's David? To them he was just a shepherd. And from what I understand of Jewish culture, it was kind of one of those things where all the boys would, would take their turn as a shepherd as they were coming up. And, that, and finally they get to the youngest and he gets that job because it's not, it's not a, a thrill a minute job. It's an important job, but it's not one that everybody talks about as the greatest. But we know what God did with the shepherd boy David. He turned him into a warrior king. So I think in some ways 
we have another parallel. Just as we said earlier that God delights to work in deserts, he also delights to work with shepherds. It's kind of interesting how he does things. He has a purpose for everything he does, and he never makes a mistake. And so he comes to these shepherds and he gives them the news. And here's what Charles Spurgeon says about Christ. He says, On Christ and what he has done, my soul hangs for time and eternity. And if your soul also hangs there, it will be saved as surely as mine shall be. And if you are lost, trusting in Christ, I will be lost with you and will go to hell with you. I must do so. For I have nothing else to rely upon but the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, died, was buried, and rose again, went to heaven, and still lives and pleads for sinners at the right hand of God. Can you comprehend, I know I can't comprehend the fullness of this, that the very Son of God who had a place in the throne room of God, stepped off of that throne and came down to earth as a baby to be raised by earthly parents so that he could understand what we go through and so that he could ultimately give his life for us. I echo the words of Charles Spurgeon when I say, I have nothing else to rely on except for the cross of Christ. And that's what this incarnation was leading to. So our third point, the shepherds respond. And before I get really into this point, I just want to say the response is where the difference is made. Probably 85 to 90% of America has heard some form of the gospel message. Most people have heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Most people can recite Bible stories and the most recited verse in the whole of scripture is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. But just hearing that message doesn't make the difference. Imagine if the shepherds had just sat there and said, oh, that was interesting. And it didn't go beyond that. How many people do that today? How many of you have done that? How many of you have sat in church week after week and said, you know, that's interesting. Now, I, I hope and I trust that many of you know the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior. 
But I've learned not to take that for granted. And I want to implore you once again, as I did earlier, to trust the Lord with your salvation. Because if the God of the universe is willing to step off his throne and inhabit a human body, not just for now, but for all eternity, for the Bible tells me I will look on him whom I have pierced. then it may just be that he's worthy of following. I would encourage you to do so. So we move on to the shepherd's response. And it says in Luke 2.15, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad that which was told concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. So, the shepherds, they, they discuss amongst themselves. They're like, let us go unto Bethlehem and see this thing which God's made known to us. And they didn't say, let's, let's sleep on it and go in the morning. They said, let us go now. Back to the point I made a few minutes ago. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to make things right with God. And if you know God, now is the time to get back in right fellowship with Him if you're struggling. Because He always has His arms open wide for you. I know I strive to keep very short accounts with God because I can feel when our fellowship is not right. And uh, it's no fun. So they go as soon as they can and, and uh, they see this and then what do they do? They go out and they proclaim it. Have you told anyone about Christ recently? Have you told them what he's done for you? May I make a suggestion? Before you end today, whether it's somebody here at church or whether it's somebody in your family or whether it's somebody that you can call on the phone and talk to, tell someone of something marvelous that God has done for you today. Because if we start within the church and we start within our families and we talk about God's faithfulness with that, it will become easier to talk with the world about what God has done for us. And so these shepherds do that. They, they see it and they proclaim it. 
And it says, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Do you ever imagine what it must have been like for Mary to be holding her young son or maybe to be standing beside the cradle and have these shepherds come and say, these angels came to us and told us that your baby will save the world. I bet Mary would have believed that a lot more than some other people because she had her own experience with an angel. So she knew how they operated. But I wonder if she marveled that God would choose shepherds. And I wonder what she was thinking. I'd like to sit down with her and find some of that out. God didn't find it relevant to record more of that in his words, so he didn't. But I'd still like to meet her someday and find some of that out because it seems like such an amazing story. And as these shepherds left, they told people that they came in contact with. And they made it known abroad, which kind of gives me the idea that they told a lot of people. And uh, they made a lot of people ask questions and start talking about this baby. And I really want to focus for a few minutes on this last statement about the shepherds. It says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. You know, perhaps one of the biggest things the shepherds learned that night is that God is a truth teller. That he is a promise keeper. For they found the babe exactly the way the angel said. The Bible book of James says that with God there is no shadow of turning. That every good and perfect gift comes from above. God doesn't change his mind. He writes it and he intends it and he leaves it the way it's intended. And so when he told these shepherds and they found it the way he said, what rejoicing What rejoicing. If we could look at, by way of cross reverence, Luke 251 if someone could read that. Anyone? 
down with him and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. I put that by way of cross-reference. It's not till later in the chapter, but I notice that it once again has the phrase that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. You know, I know from talking to my mother, I don't know from first-hand experience, but I know from talking to my mother that being a mother is full of joys, trials, sorrows. And to her, it seems like she just blinked. and Now she has all these adult children married with their own children been really difficult for her to adjust to us not all being under the same roof anymore. It's been difficult for all of us, actually. It's been really difficult for me to to watch my younger siblings marry and go their own way and oftentimes across the country. Because things don't stay the same. But how much more would that be magnified if you were raising the very Son of God? To think about all these things that happened in his life that you witnessed. I wonder if Mary went back to that cradle when she was at the cross. If she saw the shepherds again and remembered what they had said about the angels' message. Such an amazing message we have here in the second chapter of Luke. May it not only be for Christmas, but may it be for every day of the year. I thought this quote from Martin Luther was a very telling quote. Martin Luther says this, If he have faith, the believer cannot be restrained. He betrays himself. He breaks out. He confesses and teaches the gospel to people at the risk of life itself. Some people say that faith is a private thing. That's a buzzword today. We're told that you can have faith as long as you keep it to yourself. But why would I want to keep the greatest message of all time to myself? If your house was on fire, you would want someone to tell you. And if you saw a house on fire, you would feel duty-bound to tell them. Well, there's a lot of people in this world today whose houses are on fire. I'm not talking about brick and mortar. I'm talking about something far more important. I'm talking about the very souls of men. We are especially now, today, at a place in our culture and in our country where our faith cannot remain private. 
It has to affect every part of our lives. To the point where when people see us, they can see that, they, that this person has been with Jesus. And sure, their reaction will be varied. Because some people will say, rejoicing that this person has been with Jesus. And some people will, like the Pharisees, reject Jesus and so reject us. But we must be prepared for that. I can tell you that apart from the Spirit of God, I will not be prepared for that. I consider myself a wimp. I hate pain. I hate discomfort. And I've been called more than once in my life a crybaby. But you know what? I have to believe that if the Lord calls me to be martyred, He will give me a special dose of His Spirit so that I will be able to suffer for the Lord. Because if He can do it for Paul, He can do it for me. If you are truly living the God-filled life, listen to me here, if you're truly living the God-filled life, you don't even have to necessarily be intentional about sharing Christ because Christ will come out of you. I had a friend once who sent me a message and she said, stop sending me all this religious crap. And I had never sent her anything directly. But the thing is, whenever I communicate, whether it be on Facebook or some other means. Jesus comes out because He is my life. And if that offends some people, so be it. Because they nailed Him to a cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this wonderful story. We thank you that even with the shepherds, you proved yourself to be a promise keeper, to be a truth teller. Lord, we pray that we would be the same as your vessels and as your followers. Lord, I pray that you would bless these saints, that you would keep them, that you would make your face to shine upon them and give them peace. We pray this in Jesus' name.